Hello and welcome to the Recreation to Recreation podcast, the show where we explore the stories of people who have turned the activity that they love into positive change for our world. My name is Jen, and I'll be your sidekick on this adventure as we treasure hunt for gems of insight and wisdom while exploring the planet with our inspiring guests. For today's adventure, we're heading to Nova Scotia with Celeste to explore his world of connection, experience, and regenerative tourism. Hi, Celeste. How are you today? I'm good. I'm waiting for summer. It's been cool, but uh, I hear it's um, around the corner, so I'm looking forward to it. I was just going to ask you if you could situate us where you are. I would love to hear a little bit more about what it's like there today and just where you're at. Well, you know, last weekend I was at Briar Island, which is this little um, magical island that you have to take two ferries to get to. It sticks out in the Bay of Fundy, and it really puts a picture in my mind of how birds might see Nova Scotia. And so if you were a bird flying north during the spring migration along the eastern seaboard of North America, and you happen to be a bird, there'd be this funnel of from the air, three-dimensional funnel, and the birds would say, whew. First point of land coming down here to, to Briar Island. And so Briar Island is this extension of the western side of Nova Scotia. And Nova Scotia is a little bit funny to, to get accustomed to because almost like an island, it goes from southwest to northeast. So you get slightly disoriented. But running down the western side of Nova Scotia, next to the Bay of Fundy, is a range of old Appalachian mountains called North Mountain. Mm. From North Mountain, you get this beautiful agricultural area called the Annapolis Valley. And there are probably only three food production areas in Canada that are as prolific and as focused as, as the Annapolis Valley. I think of the Comox Valley on Vancouver Island. I think of the food belts and Niagara food belt and wine growing region in Southern Ontario. And I think of the Annapolis Valley, but what makes it unique here is that the marine climate of the Bay of Fundy influences uh, the food growing region of the Annapolis Valley. And then immediately adjacent to the Annapolis Valley is another ridge, which is called South Mountain, which is where I live. This is the home of Wabanaki. Wabanaki is the Mi'kmaq name for Acadian forest. Wabanaki loosely explained by Mi'kmaq colleagues from Bear River First Nation at the south end of the Annapolis Valley would be that this is the land that dawn first graces in North America on Turtle Island. Oh, and that's so beautiful. Wabanaki is the forest here that has traditionally served Mi'kmaq people for thousands of years. The existing vegetation would be, as I look out my window, white pine, white ash, red maple, poplar, trembling aspen, red pine, red spruce, white spruce, and sugar maple. So it's a mix of, of some really important vegetation. And then, of course, in the understory would be a huge and rich variety of species that have been medicine and home and bounty for thousands of years. We live on top of South Mountain, and the word that I would use to describe our caretaking role, where we are, just emerged out of a webinar that I took part in yesterday from the Mersey Tobiatic group that is establishing a Woodlands Nature Trust, a Woodlands Working Trust for people who are not landowners, not private landowners, 
but actually woodland stewards. And I think that's a really good nod to the fact that Nova Scotia has a series of peace and friendship treaties. The treaties here in, in Eastern Canada were not established out of conflict. They were established out of peace and friendship. And so these are unceded lands. And so as unceded lands, the term woodland steward makes a lot of sense in the sense that we don't have ownership of it. We are affiliated with it as contemporary uh, people who live here. So knowing the woodlands is important to me. And I do that through a variety of means, one using ecological knowledge and learning, but the second is broadening my understanding of how the Mi'kmaq see the land through a framework, which is called two-eyed seeing. And two-eyed seeing is from an elder in Northern Nova Scotia who originated the term so that we could begin to understand that that science isn't the be-all and end-all. That science, when seen simultaneously or through the duality of spirit and traditional knowledge, is equally and perhaps significantly more rounding in the way that we have a relationship with nature. Mm-hmm. Holistic viewpoint. And for those listening, Turtle Island refers to the continent of North America. Uh, so that's beautiful, Celeste. I mean, what a grounding in terms of where you are. And I really appreciate you sharing all of that because I think that it's so important, especially with conversation and storytelling and us sharing our experience of the world around us, that we can be listening from anywhere in the world. And I think that is just the most beautiful thing. But to really take that time at the beginning to get situated so that we can really understand understand when you're sharing your stories with us today, where you're coming from. Yeah. And I think that we have a unique opportunity in Canada with a global audience to really pay attention to the journey that we are all on in terms of reconciliation and what that means in terms of language, identity, relationship, and how we choose to learn from that or not. And so I think the obligation we have as people within North America who who may be in a position of having a very different viewpoint than a Eurocentric viewpoint, or perhaps a Central American viewpoint, or a colonial African continent viewpoint. Indigenous people didn't disappear from here. Yes, many were exterminated, but they have survived, persisted, and are people who are amazingly resilient within this mm -hmm. country. And so we have an opportunity to relearn language, identity, and relationship to place and people if we're willing to do that work. And so that's a Canadian perspective. That's a really unique Canadian opportunity that we have. Mm -hmm. I agree. And that actually came up. I interviewed another Canadian and this exact topic came up, which is there is a very unique perspective that can be gained from our exploration of our relationship with not only the land, but with one another. And I think that that's so important. Thank you. That was beautiful. You're welcome. So I am going to ask my weird and wonderful questions because I've been starting the interviews that way, although I feel like we just dove in at the deep end and that was so beautiful that I almost hesitate to do this, but they're quite fun. My first would be, do you have a favorite poem or poet? You know, I don't I don't follow poetry that much, but I, my response to you would be a more contemporary one, which is that I believe that our contemporary songwriters are our contemporary poets. Mm. And so live music and songwriting has been very much a part of my life for 40 years, from going to the Winnipeg Folk Festival with our family and taking our children there for 30 years, to hosting house concerts in our home. And so we got to meet amazing poets 
literally poets. John Mann from Spirit of the West, who's no longer with us. Tom Wilson from Junkhouse and Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. Um, Valdi, Stephen Fearing. These are people who speak of the Canadian identity, who speak of relationships, who speak of tragedy, who speak of nature, of place, and don't avoid the raw and difficult things to pay attention to. So my response would be is, I'm not sure that I have a favorite poem at all. I I probably have a repertoire of some remarkable experiences of hearing songs sung for the first time in our home Mm -hmm. and really realizing that these words reflect a lifetime of crafting, a lifetime of a relationship with people in place. But if there was one person that sort of I could say kind of shook us in our bones. It would be Shane Coison from Vancouver. Shane Coison was featured at the opening of the Vancouver edition of the Olympic Games. And he rose on a torch that came out and he recited a poem, his words. He's, I forget the words that one would use. It's not rap, but it's, um, it's performance poetry. Spoken word, spoken I think word. is what they call yeah, it. Spoken word, exactly. And I forget the title of it, but it's about Canada. And, mm-hmm. and I would really encourage you to go and see that it, and, and, and hear it. It literally, your whole skin will crawl with the awareness of the responsibility we carry to take care of this place and how privileged we are to live here. So Shane Coison, well, I mean, in answer to your, to your question, he is a poet and, and he brings it to life through music. And we have witnessed this over and over again. And it, and it is it is very moving. And I think that however poetry is done, whether it's words recited without music or words recited with music, they have the ability to bring tears. They have the ability to bring deep feeling about things. So yeah, I, I, I like that question. And I'm grateful that you brought up songwriting and music because it's been a very powerful part of my life. I find listening to music is something that is very evocative for all of us. It's an exploration of being human. I mean, it's a reason why I wanted to create playlists that the guests who came on the show were able to choose different songs that represented the three themes of inspiration, motivation, and relaxation. Because I think that we have a real opportunity to explore one another in a way that is different to how we normally do. Instead of just asking, you know, what kind of music do you like? This is an opportunity to get thematic about it. I just think music is extremely powerful. So thank you for sharing that. I love that answer. Here's another one. What does a person need to be happy? You know, it's something that I don't have a simple answer for because in life, we have different stages. I think I'm at a point in my life where I would say that happiness isn't the be all and end all. Happiness is is really needed in order for us to be present. But I would say that for me, what I've learned is that there is a journey of ups and downs in which happiness is one of the components Mm -hmm. of being present. But so also is the acceptance of other things that are real and immediate. For me, where I get my, my, my most deep happiness is going for a walk in the woods. Mm Mm-hmm. Because then everything else drops away. And so those are really intentional moments to, in a tourism context or a travel and tourism context, it's where I slow down. Mm -hmm. And slowing down is when I can be present to me. And when I can be more present to me, that might be a feeling of being serene or being calm or Mm -hmm. being 
more tuned into myself, which might be descriptors about happiness and what happiness might be for me. Beautiful. Thank you. What is the best age to be? (laughs) Again, because I'm 71, I would say that each decade has its has its magic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're full of piss and vinegar in your 20s and 30s. <laughs> and in your 40s, for me, I began to have some reflections about what needed to change. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of energy to do that. And man, did I put that energy into shifting from a career into um, establishing my own business. Mm-hmm. The 50s and 60s are this period of sort of innovation, creativity, building relationships, seeing Canada through a bigger lens, understanding maybe the role that you can play in influencing others, the potency of your own ability to shift narratives or to influence others, or have the courage to do the things that are not what others are doing. Right. And now I'm at a point of sort of saying, what is it that I have learned that I can give away? Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because the giving away is what I'm finding very rewarding. Everything that I've learned, giving it to others, mentoring others, coaching others, and watching them decide what they want to do with that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that if we're open to learning, so that would be something that I would say characterizes me is that each decade has brought opportunities to to learn. And I'm grateful for that. Wonderful. Do you know how to salsa dance? Give me enough tequila and maybe I would. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Polka dots or stripes? Polka dots. Stripes are too linear. I've, I've learned that I need to shift away from being linear and polka dots are fun. They're creative. They remind me of my grandchildren. They're colorful. There's more dance in them than than stripes. Stripes also strike me as being too uniform, too regimented, too authoritarian, too military-like. They exist in our life. I think we have we have as a society been very linear, and I think that I'm trying to get away from being linear. Mm-hmm. I would absolutely agree for you. Polka dots all the way. One last question before we delve in deeper. Name a word that starts with the letter H. Higher. Trees grow higher. Clouds are high above us. We live on a high mountain range, relatively speaking. We are higher above sea level because we've intentionally chosen to live higher above sea level given climate change. Higher. This is why I love these questions. And so now that we've got those weird and wonderful questions out of the way, this is something that actually I haven't explored with you, even regardless of our friendship. So I'd love to just know a little bit more about how life began for you, Celeste. Well, I'm uh, an immigrant to North America. Um, I was born in India. And at the age of three, my parents left India, our young family. So I had a brother and we took a Dutch freighter from India to San Francisco. I don't know how long that journey was, but I have pictures of the two of us on board the freighter with my mom dressed in a sari on our journey to this new land. We had moved because my mom was having some allergies. And I think the doctor suggested that if she was to avoid some of her asthma and related allergies, that perhaps one of the ways we they could do that was to move to a different country where perhaps some of the things that were bothering her were not present. And my father was supported by somebody from the US who 
intervened, I guess, as a nominator and was able to help my father apply for a student in a master's program at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. And from that, he took his master's and evolved into a PhD. So he ended up being in Fort Collins for six years. And then at the end of that period, he applied for a teaching position at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. And so as a family, we moved by train from Fort Collins, came through Sarnia. I still have memories of traveling on trestle bridges high above big rivers and coming into Canada. And then we arrived in this tiny little outskirt of Fredericton place called Fredericton Junction, a little whistle stop that we landed into. And so we established ourselves as residents on the north side of the river, the St. John River that flows through New Brunswick, and a year later moved to the south side of the river. That's where I grew up in Fredericton, New Brunswick. As a youngster, as a teenager, with one hiatus, we, in the middle of sort of our New Brunswick stay, my father wanted to, he had a sabbatical for the summer. And so we went down to Princeton, New Jersey. And while we were there, we got news that a job that he had applied on at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas had come through. We all moved down to Texas. And within a very few months, none of us felt really at home or comfortable there compared to the smaller community vibe and a very different cultural context for us as immigrant people in Fredericton. So we were able to, he was able to come back to the University of New Brunswick a year later, where we are all very grateful. By that time, of course, my third uh, brother had had been born in Colorado. So the, the the family of five returned to Fredericton, which is where I ended up with my high school years and my university years at the University of New Brunswick. And, and it was while I was at the University of New Brunswick that I had my first opportunity to work in nature. I had not done any self-reflection as a young youngster, as a teenager, about the importance of nature, other than I really enjoyed camping. I was with Boy Scouts and I was with with friends. We would go camping, uh, go out to cabins in the backwoods of outside of Fredericton, and I thoroughly enjoyed life out there. And I remember going down our street one day in New Brunswick, in Fredericton, and coming across our neighbor, just a slightly bit older than me, and I was astonished that this man this young adult knew all of the bird songs of the birds that were singing on the street that I was living. And that really, that has stayed with me. And to, and to this day, I'm a birder. And, and in two days, I'm going to be going and taking another uh, course on birding by ear here in Nova Scotia with a preeminent uh, birding expert here. So birdsong has been very much part of how I connect to the reality of my place. And it could, could not matter whether I'm in Costa Rica in Mexico, anywhere. I listen to birds. Birds are a direct acoustic channel for me to place. One summer, I had worked for a prof at the University of New Brunswick, and it was a magical job. There's a, there is a small bird that is found in eastern Canada and down through New England that was hunted many for many, many decades, but it's not hunted anymore. And it's a member of the the snipe family. So it's a woodcock, American woodcock. And I worked an entire summer banding. It was it was absolutely magical. And we have a woodcock that's singing here on the, the land that we are woodland stewards of. And it sings here. It arrived here about a month ago. And it has a really distinctive 
painting sound that once you hear it, and then uh, fortunately, and this was back in April, our grandchildren were here, and I mm-hmm. said, "Listen!" And so they were listening, and the and when it takes off, it takes off in a courtship flight. It's a display flight. It flew right over our grandchildren's head. Yeah. Wow! So birds have been a big part of it, and as a result of that, I got a job as a park naturalist at Cape Breton Highlands National Park, which was transformative because that was the first time that I was in a mode of communicating things about nature to people who also wanted to learn about nature. And that started my track in working with Parks Canada. So I worked with Parks Canada in the regional office in Halifax as a planner. I worked in Gross Moore National Park for one winter, just after it had been established as a national park. I worked in PEI National Park, and then I worked in the regional office in Halifax before moving to Manitoba sight unseen to a place called Riding Mountain National Park. And we were there. We went there to spend maybe three or four years, and we ended up being there for 36 years, wow. which we would never have intentionally chosen, and, and not to be in any way dismissive to Manitoba, but it, it's an odd side trip that became a long trip. And that's where our children were born, and um, we had a community there. It's an interesting place to live because Here's this reality of our times where a large national park is entirely surrounded by a human altered landscape. Mm-hmm. And while I was aware of the disconnect for me of immediately leaving the park and then being in an industrialized agricultural landscape, whenever we would go to Brandon or Winnipeg or Dauphin or other places, I'm not sure that I really processed it completely in terms of whether this was the right place for me for the long term. But in moving back here to Nova Scotia uh, seven years ago, I suddenly felt at home. Well, why? Well, of course, I grew up in this forest. This is this is the Wabanaki forest. This is what covers the Maritimes. We feel very comfortable being here right now. This is this is home. That's beautiful. And I love what you shared about birdsong. Obviously, you're taking advanced learning when it comes to birdsong, but for those of us that don't have that knowledge, but you're interested in it, there's an, a wonderful app that's come out of the Cornell Institute for Ornithology called Merlin, and it is completely free. And what I love about it is you can download the bird database for where you live. But if you go traveling, you can download the bird database for wherever you're going. And it is so fun. <laughs> I just love to sit out with my coffee and I just put it there and I start recording. And then it tells you all the birds that are around you that you can't see. It highlights the different songs. So it's a wonderful way of starting to learn, a very good introduction to learning. So obviously you already knew about this app, but for anyone listening who is interested in birdsong and wants to get into it, please download the Merlin app, support it. It's wonderful. I resonate too with what you're saying in terms, and I think a lot of listeners will too, regardless of where they are in their professional or their personal life journey, that it's amazing how sometimes things that we think are only going to, whether it's a place or a job or a relationship, that we think, oh, maybe this will just be for a season, ends up becoming something much longer or something that you do think is going to be a lifelong thing ends up only being a season. And I think that is actually one of the most beautiful, yet can be the most challenging parts of life, is recognizing that things all have their time, they all have their season. I think in many ways, you know, hearing you talk about moving to Nova Scotia and feeling like you're finally home, if you hadn't have had the contrast of not living in that place and space and living somewhere where you were, and I I do call it contrast. I think it's a great word for it because I don't like to label things necessarily good or bad. They're just different. And so 
I think the contrast really helps us understand when you finally really feel a sense of belonging, whether it's a place or a group of people or a job, a work environment. It makes it that much more awakening and eye-opening to, oh, this is what it's supposed to feel like. I wonder, was it the same for your wife, Susan? Did she grow up in sort of Nova Scotia? No, she grew up in the Eastern Townships. And the interesting thing that she would say now to anybody who comes and visits here is when they ask her, so what is it like living here in Nova Scotia? It reminds her of where she grew up in the Eastern Townships of Quebec. Rolling hills, dairy cattle, small farms, and the relief, the the beautiful relief, alternating between forest and, and agricultural landscapes, but not completely cleared right? It's, it's, so it's very similar, this whole landscape in and around from Truro to the Annapolis Valley. And at this time of the year, it's verdant. I mean, that word is true. It is so true about the Eastern Townships. It is so true about here. You, you really understand what green means visually and, and how that might feel in that transition from winter or a sparse time of year when, when you don't have hardwood or deciduous leaf cover to a time period when this biomass, like right now, as I'm looking out the window, we have probably five shades of green because of poplar, sugar maple, red maple, orange from red maple seeds before the red maple leaves come out, ash that are just beginning and see you see brown, birch, a different color of green, young pines, young ashes, young poplars at the wood's edge. And then, of course, a lot of the understory with with rose and pin cherry and a variety of other species. So it's not green. It's all of these different colors that are part of this season. This is where I think language is such a gift. When you find a word that truly describes something that you're experiencing. I have this experience of water being on the ocean where a certain time of day in the evening, the water looks like molten metal. And I have yet to find a word to describe that feeling. So I really enjoy it when I can see that someone has found a word that really encapsulates their experience of a place. Thank you for sharing that. The other thing that really comes to me when we're talking about you finding this sense of home when you move to Nova Scotia and It's amazing how when, and and this really ties into what you've dedicated your life to in terms of travel and tourism, when we travel to different places that can be almost the other side of the world and that sense of, oh, this feels like home too. And I don't know if you've ever had that going somewhere that you really didn't expect it. Sometimes it can be perhaps something to do with heritage and ancestry. So I remember going to Scotland and going, whoa, I feel a real sense of connection. And I know that for my mom, when she goes to Italy, it just feels like home to her. I'd love to use this as an opportunity to ask you, what do you think tourism is in a deeper sense? We obviously feel this pull to travel to different places and experience different cultures, cuisine, sight, sounds, uh, ways of being. I'd love to hear from you, you know, sort of 40 plus years into really dedicating your life to helping people experience places and communities. What does it mean to you? I think there are, there's some different dimensions to it. One, one is, you know, my personal yearning for it because I tend to be in our family, the traveler. Whereas my wife, Sue, would be very comfortable not traveling. However, she'll be very clear to say that she will travel anywhere if it's to be with family. 
So her motivations for travel are family. For me, I think that there's both a personal part of travel and then there's a professional part of travel and tourism. So the personal part of travel for me is that if you were to look at the market research that Destination Canada has done around why do people travel as opposed to the demographics of people, what I've learned about myself is that I tend to be what's called an authentic experiencer who seeks places in nature where time has been spent by the people in that community to protect a place in perpetuity. But it's also about being by water. Water is really important for me to be beside. I don't need to be on water, but I need to be beside water. I need to hear water. I need to Mm -hmm. smell water. Mm -hmm. Last weekend, I was on Briar Island. So when the tide goes out, 30 feet of amplitude of, of tide goes out and rockweed is exposed, you smell that. That's a very evocative smell. And so for me, travel and tourism is about taking journeys that have uncertainty associated with them to places that allow me to connect to new people and places that help me understand how we can all take care of the planet better. And one of the most important parts of any travel that I do is gathering around food that is not in a restaurant. To me, that is at the heart of travel. Why? Well, there are many, many reasons for it. And I'm sure that you've experienced this and also many others have, but I would say that the best experiences for me are when we've gathered around a table and it's been home-cooked food. I was in Mm -hmm. Cyprus. I had been invited to speak to the uh, Cyprus Hotel Managers Association about experiential tourism. And one of the things I asked for is while I was there, could someone take me out into the countryside? And so um, I was fortunate because the organizer of the gathering put me in touch with a 83-year-old British Cypriot resistance fighter against the British on on Mm. Cyprus. And I got into the car and he had a girlfriend, 83-year-old. He had a girlfriend. We jumped in the car and we headed up, had no idea where we were going. First place we went to was a, a halloumi cheese factory and we got fresh halloumi cheese, not from a store. It had just been made. My mouth is being teased by this. And we start to head up into the hills. He pulls over and we're beside this place, this small house. And we stop and I see a gentleman out there and he's grinding an olive crusher. So he's crushing olives that have just come out of his olive grove. And he's taking them inside to his wife. And she's taking them and squeezing lime on them and crushing green coriander seeds, and then bringing it back to our table. And that's how we started out with fresh beer and crushed olives and green coriander and lime. And for the next three hours, we sat there as she brought out plate after plate of Cypriot country food. And we had a conversation in the mountains. We went to Peru and we went through the hidden valley, the sacred valley. And one of the things that our guide did for us, because we weren't on a tour, we were, we had asked for a customized approach to going up to Machu Picchu, is we came to a farmhouse and we sat down and we had country food with the family made for us. So country food is really important for me because country food is about really about the DNA of place. That's where the potatoes in Peru, which are really, really important, the culture of potatoes and growing potatoes, and the culture of understanding climate change from a cultural perspective through potatoes, which are resistant to the changes that climate is manifesting on the Peruvian landscape, is an insight into how a culture evolves into the agriculture of food production. But the taste of chicken, the taste of the sauces that are part of the food, the salads that are used, all of that speaks to the terroir of place. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so you, as, as, a, as an ecologist here in Nova Scotia says, from a human ecology perspective, from a human body perspective, all of the cells in our body are replaced every seven years. Mm-hmm. So if we eat local and we are eating local for seven years, we are local. That's right. We truly become local. Being local would probably be one of my most important motivations for travel. And through being local, I find happiness. I had a similar eye-opening moment when a friend of mine, we were talking about expeditions and he was planning to paddle. And he said, what I've come to realize is as we fill our bodies up with new water, as we drink, you become the river that you're traveling down. We have different ways of relating to where we are. I have a relationship with the environment that I place at the same importance as I would with a friend. So from my perspective, what you're saying about food would be the same. How do we relate not just mentally to a place, but physically to a place, emotionally, spiritually? I think there's so many different ways of experiencing place with others and in solitude. When you were talking about earlier going for a walk in the forest, and that's a place that you find happiness as well. I think it's really important to understand what kind of traveler you are. And I like that you were able to put a label on the type of traveler that you are just so that you can better understand yourself. Not to say that that label can't change and shift and move as we go through our different decades or different stages of life. My question to you would be, how would you encourage people to explore and discover what kind of traveler they are? And If someone finds themselves similar to you in terms of wanting to seek out these really authentic people-based experiences, culture-based experiences in terms of sitting in someone's home and having them serve you a meal, how would you begin to find those kinds of experiences? What should you look for? Great question. And I, and I think what I'm going to do is partly answer your previous question now with my professional hat on. Mm-hmm. Because it will lead into also answering the second question. So for me, professionally... Tourism is not an industry. And I say that very intentionally because industry is about production, production mentality. And in a production mentality, what you try to do is you try to commoditize things. And when you commoditize things, you inevitably end up involved in a mechanistic approach to producing stuff at large volume, reducing the price, commoditizing and cheapening the value of what is there. And it becomes transactional, meaning what's the price? Is it on a shelf? Can I buy it? For me, that's not what tourism is. It never has been, although it's only now that I have the ability to articulate what tourism is. So for me, tourism is a relationship. It's a relationship between host communities and host businesses, welcoming and inviting travelers to their community. And in inviting travelers in, we ask them to be responsible, which tourism has not done. This is really important because tourism has, at a high production level as an industry, been absolutely degenerative all over the planet. It doesn't matter where you look. It could be Barcelona, it could be Venice, it could be sunflowers in Southern Ontario, it could be Peggy's Cove. Uh, which receives 700,000 people a year, many of them coming from cruise ships and being transported down on large buses to go to a small fishing village today, which is iconic with Nova Scotia's tourism industry as a beacon of sort of, this is what Nova Scotia is. Mm -hmm. When we invite travelers to be responsible, we invite them to take part in things that we value as community. 
And so instead of tourism being driven by the marketers, tourism needs to be driven by, owned by, and shaped by the local community. That is different than what has been happening for the last 50 years. Right. And if we offer people a sense of place, local food, things that are unique, and things that are done with people who are paid a living wage in our community to tell their story, mm -hmm. as opposed to just self-guided, then people have the opportunity to go away transformed. And here's the magical piece about tourism as a sector, as a commercial activity. When people go home transformed, they are the best marketing agents. You don't need other marketing. Absolutely. They become the advocates for that place. So that's my current definition of tourism, which then leads to, so how do people select travel opportunities? Well, people are very different. And some people are very much needing the comfort of a fully packaged adventure. Some people don't want to travel. They want to go to the cottage mm -hmm. because the cottage is the place where there is serenity and peace and perhaps family. For those of us who are yearning to go differently to a different place, there are many tools out there, but they can also be very complicated and somewhat overwhelming. And I say that because I'm in the middle right now of planning a trip with my brother-in-law to go to Costa Rica. Where does one start? An accomplished travel specialist like myself. Well, at the heart of it, it has to be experience. At the heart of it, it has to be contact with real people. At the heart of it, I don't want um, luxury accommodation. At the heart of it, I want to be able to stumble over language and, and feel the uncomfortableness of being in a place where I don't understand everything. Yeah. At the heart of it, I want to learn stories that will help me feel. We're doing something interesting. Costa Rica as a country has a West Coast, Pacific Coast, has an Atlantic Coast. It also has the central cloud forest and the mountains that's in, in the middle. So we're going to do something that combines a couple of different things. We've agreed to do this. When I travel today, I want to travel with the lowest footprint possible. Yep. So direct flight to San Jose from Canada is probably the best way rather than multiple flights and, and increasing the amount of high level carbon emissions. And there will be a cost of carbon associated with my travel. I've chosen to do that. So I have to think about how to mitigate for that. And I can talk about that at another time. We've decided to go with a company that actually offers five different itineraries in Costa Rica. But I've gone with that company because I have been introduced to them several times at a national conference in Canada called Impact, mm -hmm. where they have laid out their mandate for regenerative practices involved in travel and tourism. So I'm choosing my travel company intentionally. And when you go to their website, their website states their values, but more important, when you dig down into the itineraries, now you begin to see the language and the things that you will do that are very specific, that reinforce the research they've done to bring me as a traveler directly into contact with real people doing real things in the country of Costa Rica. So we'll take that as a core 90 itinerary out of maybe about 18 days that we'll be in Costa Rica. And we'll learn from that front end nine days about maybe there's some other places we need to be visiting here. Having said that, I've just been coaching an amazing chocolatier here in the Annapolis Valley. She's created a brand new experience, the art of making fine chocolate. She, so she doesn't get her chocolate and make confections. She makes chocolate. That means she has to source her cacao beans from different countries. 
She does that by getting cacao only from countries that are PONA certified, meaning no child labor involved. Mm -hmm. And she has a cacao producer in Costa Rica, whom she is going to connect me to. Perfect. But we'll go there and we'll spend time. So there's a connection there for mm -hmm. three or four days on farm learning from, and they have an on-farm cacao and chocolate making experience. And then we'll go to the East coast of Costa Rica, where I've learned from my daughter about the Afro-Caribbean culture that's on the East coast. So in all of these places, we are using a variety of online tools, personal connections, recommendations from family and friends, and having a conversation about how we will then curate a trip that meets our needs because it's not just about going away. It's going away to have a meaningful time that lives our values. You made a couple of points there. One I really want to pick up on, which is about the storytelling piece. And I, f I find this really interesting, having been involved in the tourism sector myself for quite a few years. It was interesting to watch how the oldest form of communication became a disruption in the tourism sector. And I found that almost comical. I just thought to myself, that's, that's how we've always connected. It was interesting to see this shift in marketing to peer-to-peer -peer review, the amplification of storytelling from the tourist, realizing that as a tourism operator, you can let your visitors tell the story. And I think that that is really beautiful. It also makes it a lot easier because you don't have to be generating content all the time. But I'd like to explore the other side of storytelling from the sort of experience design side of things, because my hope is that some of our listeners will be trying to explore different ways of being within the tourism sector if they're already running a tourism operation. And perhaps they are on that more mass tourism side of things because they just don't know another way or haven't had the chance to explore it or been willing to take that risk to change the structure of their business, which is understandable, especially given COVID and all the challenges that different sectors faced. But I would love to know obviously your coach so they can they can potentially hire you <laughs> but is there perhaps a couple of nuggets of wisdom that you might be able or just more so jumping off points for them to begin thinking about how they might change the way that they are within their business so that they can start to explore more experiential ways of telling their story and having a deeper relationship with the visitors that are coming to experience their story? I think at the heart of your question is a really important set of considerations. Are people who are in tourism businesses, have tourism businesses, are they in it for the business or is it value-based? Mm -hmm. This is really important for me because I think you can look at any profession. You know, some people go into certain professions to make money. To me, making money is an outcome. That's not a reason for having business. Making money is important because it puts food on the table. Yes, I get that. But for me, the whole conversation that I would have with anybody who is per perhaps currently in tourism or perhaps currently thinking about shifting and, and establishing an aspect of their farm or their retail business that might be more of a visitor experience in which they're directly encountering people and spending time with people is to ask themselves, what are the values that drive you? Do you have a story to share? And if so, what's important about sharing that? People have asked me often in the workshops that I facilitate, and it's, it's become a bit of a 
laughing matter for me, but it's very serious, actually. They'll say to me at some point in the, in the two days or three days of the training, so Celeste, what's your bottom line? That's a tricky question because from a capitalist perspective and a current financial and economic language perspective, bottom line has a huge amount of weight that is political, mm-hmm. that is ideological, and is essentially saying, how much money do you want to make? And so I'll say to them in answer to their question, um, what's your bottom line? Transformation. No, 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 Celeste. As if I don't understand English, what is your bottom line? Transformation. What, what do you mean? I would like people to be changed as a result of the experience of being spending time with me, listening mm-hmm. to my story, being in the woods with me. And out of that, there's an exchange, a monetary exchange. And I value that monetary exchange, but you're going to get the best of me. You're going to get a story. You're going to do some cool things. For me, for an experience, that means making something, tasting something, doing something. It cannot be in a conference room. It cannot be, it cannot be just even sitting under a tree. We have to, the body has to move. We have to smell things. Our senses have to be engaged. And in that practice, there's a tricky thing for anybody who might be contemplating adding an experience to their business. And that tricky part is how do you craft an experience? Right. Because it's not about standing at the front of the bus and speaking at people and telling them what you know. Now, and this comes from the world of education, the central element of outstanding experience development and experiential storytelling is that you have to do something that teachers have known for a long time. You shift from being a sage on the stage to being a guide on the side. Mm -hmm. And that set of words is helpful in the sense that a business owner suddenly realizes, and and I say this tongue in cheek often when I'm coaching, I love the story you have to say now. How are you going to make it an experience? And the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is to put duct tape on your mouth (laughs) and still facilitate the experience. It is at that moment that everybody gets it because suddenly they realize it's not what they know and what they have to say. Suddenly they realize they have to put the potter's tool into their hands. Mm -hmm. They have to put a ukulele into somebody's hands. Mm -hmm. They have to get them to dig potatoes out of the garden to then put into a pan with eggs. They have to crush cacao and smell what cacao smells like. That's their role as an experience facilitator. And for that, there is an exchange of money. And actually, the return is higher because people understand the cost of labor. When labor is involved in creating something new, people generally understand that. It's when we've commoditized things that we compare to things in a supermarket. And when that comparison happens, we have lost the importance of travel and tourism. It's when we can't compare to the supermarket, and it doesn't have to be a high price. It's when we can't compare to the supermarket that all of a sudden we have value. I absolutely love that. And I I just want to let you know that when I think back on how we met, which was through a workshop... One of the things that really stuck with me from our time together and has been 
a foundational piece of how I have lived my life, not only professionally, but also on a personal level. And it's not that I wasn't already there, but you just allowed me to have the words to put behind what I wanted to do, which was collaboration, not competition. Right? And I find this, again, quite comical, especially, say, outside of business, when I think about environmental care and protection, when we're all pushing in the same direction, and yet there's this undercurrent of competition of who can save the world the fastest, who can save it the best. It's really interesting to me to see so much of a shift towards blue ocean thinking versus red ocean thinking, this real understanding that when you win, I win. And to really step away from this concept that there is scarcity and lack, because if, as you said, when you create something so unique and authentic to you, there is no competition and there doesn't need to be. There never needs to be. And so I just wanted you to know that that has been transformational for me within my development, both professionally and personally. So thank you for that that wisdom that you shared. Well, thanks for sharing that. It, and it's interesting because I think that collaboration can be trivialized as a word. It's when we actually activate on collaboration. It's the same as reconciliation. Reconciliation is not about the words. It's mm -hmm. about the action. Right. Same with collaboration. And so collaboration then speaks to values, what I was talking about earlier. Do you value working with others? Yes or no? Do you value the others in your community? What do you need to hold on to? And what can you do together? This is wine country here. There's lots of wine growers. That's right. Right? There's lots of producers here. Wonderful producers. Scarcity is not something we should be pursuing at all. Mm -hmm. There is abundance. We replace it with abundance. I absolutely agree. And it's been wonderful most recently shifting into, I'm actually now in the agricultural craft beer community in terms of my current employment. And it's really wonderful to see that collaboration is the keystone for all of it. When someone discovers craft beer somewhere far away from here, the likelihood of them then coming to choose to visit us goes up. And that's what it's all about, is just discovery and exploration and supporting one another. This is really when we can encourage outside of the box thinking. When you set up a tourism business, you're not alone and you're not in a silo. Everybody in your community is a potential collaborator. How can we tie our stories together to give people that holistic understanding and experience of where we live and why we love living here? And that's what I believe that your work does. Do you still sense quite a bit of resistance when you're working with new communities where this might be something that's alien to them? No, I would argue and I would advocate. And I would say that my experience has been entirely one of when you walk into a community and work with the community, you share principles of practice. And when you share those principles of practice, and these are written down for me, I could literally pull up a document here and say, these are our principles of practice. And one of the principles of practice for me in working with a community is collaboration. So what we do is we agree, first of all, that we have a conversation about the principles of practice and the collaboration is one of them. And that means that we work together. And so what I value in, in working within a community context is we don't talk about it, we do it. Right. And so as a result, there's no resistance at all. What, what happens is we work through things that may have resistance within it, but we're working through it. And in the process of working through it, there are all kinds of light bulbs that start to go off. Somebody will say, you know, I've lived here for 20 years. I never knew that person before. And now they know the person and they know the business value that comes with that person. 
or we might have a conversation with the charcuterie board maker. And, and the question is, so what are you going to have for food as part of this experience? And if we've set things up right in the workshop, it naturally leads them to sort of saying, oh, who in my community makes food mm-hmm. that could be on the charcuterie board? So I would say that there's really not, I've not experienced a whole lot of resistance to it because we're not talking about it. What we're doing is we are demonstrating collaborative value by asking ourselves questions that lead naturally to helping support, do business with others in our community, because it's a big win that we're all getting out of this. I think resistance can often occur when we haven't set up the front end of the conversation well. Right. Another piece that I just wanted to pick up on there, because I think leadership is a really interesting concept that is, I believe, going through a big shift right now. I mean, there's many different types of leadership. And when we think about, say, for example, the the context of tourism, I love what you said about the sage on the stage versus the guide on the side. And I have this kind of saying that I I use wait, why am I talking? Am I adding value? Or am I providing space for them to come up with their own ideas? And we talked about this before in terms of open-ended questions. When you're in conversation with someone and say you're in a position of leadership in terms of you're literally leading a group, you are both the teacher and the student. And so are your visitors. And if you can come at it from that kind of perspective that When they're coming into your place and space to have this experience with you, you also have the opportunity to see where you live with new eyes. And that, to me, is such a magical part of tourism, traveling to different places, speaking to people that you would never have crossed paths with otherwise, because it renews your energy and enthusiasm and it can shift and change the way that you deliver your story going forward. And that is a beautiful part of interaction that I think can really serve us on both sides because going on a trip and being a part of someone's experience, you can tell when your conversation is welcome and your perspective is welcome. And I think it would be the same You know, when we're speaking with children and we're exploring new things and we're asking them what they think, which people should do more of because kids are amazing and they have so much to teach us. I know you obviously have very close relationship with your grandchildren and I have absolutely no doubt that open-ended questions are like the way to play. I think that this is just such a nice way that we can start to shift and change our understanding of where we live, which when you're in the day-to-day operation of running a tourism business, you can kind of feel like Groundhog Day. But if you can come at it from this perspective of every person that comes into that experience can provide you with something new, I think it really continues to sort of fan the flame in order for you to just, as you said earlier, I want you to have the best of me. I think burnout is really a huge part of this, but we need to find new ways of keeping those levels of energy and excitement high. And I think the shift from this mass tourism, get them through the door 
to this experiential tourism is a beautiful way of doing that when we can basically flip the script. And I would build on that. So I, I love your, your note to self that we can learn from those who come to our community through the questions they ask, because the questions that they ask aren't necessarily ones we would ask. And so we have to respond in a particular way. But one of the techniques I use, and I deliberately and intentionally use this as a way of slowing the beginning of the encounter with visitors intentionally, is to ask them questions that they have experience in, because I need to hear their story. And tourism doesn't accommodate for that. Most tours will start by the following almost predictable formula. Hi, I'm Jane. I've worked here for 14 years. I love this company. This is what we're going to do today. Imagine if it started differently and it went something like this. I brought you under this tree. It's a pretty old tree. It's about 150 years old. There's a lot of stories here. Think what was happening here 150 years ago when this tree was a seedling. Now you're talking about history without talking about history. Mm -hmm. In your family, what was happening 150 years ago? Right away, we're going to identity. Right away, we're going to people who have a settler background, almost 100% of the answers will not come from any contact with Indigenous people. Where have you traveled that forests are important for you? Poof, people can answer that question. So what happens when you ask questions at the beginning is people feel valued as opposed to being served. This nuance is critical for tourism done well. Because when you establish yourself as a guide who has the capacity for asking questions as opposed to delivering knowledge, there is trust that develops. And when I talked about the definition to me that's important about tourism is that it's a relationship. If you start with questions, you are starting a relationship. Mm -hmm. If you start telling people what they should know, that's not a relationship. That's a transaction. That is an art. And that is where any tourism business whether it's a bed and breakfast, whether it is a, a wood crafter, whether it is a potter, whether it is a, an artist who is interested in creating an experience, they have to start first with that. Understanding that they're layering an experience in, it's not going to take over their business. It's one part of their business. Mm -hmm. And I think of a woodworker in Southern Ontario who would say to anybody today that the process of learning to craft an experience was discovering that he was a storyteller. He didn't know that before. Right. And then he realized he loves sharing that story. But that story caused him to learn more about the very thing that he was supposed to be sharing with others. So it's a virtuous circle. Absolutely. Returning back to this concept of leadership in terms of the work that you do is that you are empowering that discovery. You're empowering people to understand that they have so much more to offer and that in that empowerment, you're amplifying them. I love that. That's a great description. Thank you. Yeah, you're very, very welcome. And one of the things that you talked about earlier, and I just want to, I want to be conscious of time here. I mean, we could talk for hours. We both know that. <laughs> was that you sent me this beautiful article that was interviewing your son. And one of the things that I really would like to touch on today, even if it's just for a short period of time, because I know it's something very close to our hearts, is this dedication to environmental connection and protection. However, this concept of leadership that I was talking about earlier, I am yet to be a parent, but it's something that I hope that I will be able to experience at some time in my life. I will let that unfold as it will. When we are in a position of leadership as a parent, thinking about why you are doing what you're doing, 
And when you let money lead the way, those values can get lost. And we do live in society that is focused on accumulation and scarcity. We talked about that too. And I just thought that this quote at the beginning of the article from your son was so beautiful. And I just wanted to share it with you so that you can hear it rather than just read it. So this is your son speaking. Do what you love. The money will come. It is scary to trust this and rewarding to see it come true. There's a lot of privilege in being able to step out on a limb and follow your vocation. And I would like to live in a society where everyone is able to do so. My parents always told me this and encouraged me to follow my passions and interests to find a career path, and I'm glad I listened. This is something that really resonates with me and is a part of the reason why I began this podcast and began the recreation journey, is that I think so often people are desperate to find their purpose, and then they get lost in... I need to figure out what that is and and feeling that urgency. I've got to figure it out now so that I can make the money and to do the things and <laughs> accumulate all the things and all of those sort of external markers of what we our society recognizes as a successful life, right? I truly believe that if we really live our passions, and that doesn't have to be in a professional capacity at the beginning, if we live out our passions, our purpose will unfold. And this line of do what you love and the money will come, you can combine having a job with doing your passion on the side. There's a lot of talk about quitting your job and there's space and time for that. And if the privilege to be able to step out on the limb is wonderful for a lot of people, they don't have that opportunity. And so I would just love to hear a little bit more from your side, what these words mean to you to have your son speaking them in an interview about his profession. And I just really want to highlight the fact that him designing your passive home was a catalyst in his career. So what does that mean to you as a parent? It's a, <laughs> those words were passed on to me and obviously became part of the way that I talked about the evolution of Earth Rhythms as a business by a woman who was experiencing my angst at a very critical point when I was trying to make a decision about leaving a government job to start my own company. Mm -hmm. And offhandedly, she said, you should read the book. I said, what book? Do what you love and the money will follow. I said, bullshit. There's no book written like that. Yeah, there is. So I went and got the book. The book wasn't very good. My God, the phrase stuck with me. Mm -hmm. I got it. And I had never had to face that before because I had a salary every two weeks. And it reoriented me to whatever I was going to be creating needed to reflect my values and what I loved. And so I can still remember the first major gig that I had after leaving a government job. And I was now just starting my company. And the hotel that I was partnering with came to me and said, hey, we've got a client. They're bringing a number of people up from the US. Can you put something together? Well, what does that include? Well, some field trips and uh, they want some photography. Can you provide some photography for of nature uh, in the national park? Uh, can you put together an evening concept for a dinner? We're wide open. So right away, one of the things in terms of me, do what you love, I don't like boundaries. By moving to having my own company, I was no longer constrained by a bureaucracy. I could work with any community partner I wanted to. 
I could take the people out into nature. I could get them doing things because they were paying for it. And so I put together a program that had a number of really amazing guides and storytellers. One was about history. One was about bears in the national park. We put together an amazing dinner. We put the photographs together, but I had to put a price on it. And I can remember putting this whole thing together, scared. How do I know what the right price is for this? I put it together and I hit send. And within 30 minutes, the client came back accepting the proposal, thousands of dollars, mixed emotions. I could have charged more. (laughs) Right. But it was what I wanted to create. And the biggest message was they accepted what I had created. Mm -hmm. This is a big company, an American Canadian company. They don't go around doing necessarily touchy-feely things that are in nature and supporting trees and discovering wildlife values and, and learning about history and as, an, as a normal practice. Mm-hmm. It's a business that's generating international companies, but that's what they wanted as people. We had been asked to showcase the national park, and we delivered on that. And I think that's the responsibility we carry in any kind of work. And so my son's reflection about what he does as a designer is about what he values, where he lives, what he values about his privilege of being supported by intergenerational wealth that has allowed him to go to school, Mm -hmm. that has allowed him to develop a family and live in a city and be able to generate an income. And in doing those things, Even his role within the company is changing, as you noticed within the article, where they're shifting from designing luxury homes to designing affordable homes for people who need those homes. Exactly. But still using passive design principles as the underlying sustainability thread, which is Mm -hmm. the same thread by which we live our life today. And the training and tourism that I'm doing is all about our relationship to place, all about our relationship to planet, all about lowering our impact all about asking questions about net benefit as opposed to just how much money we're going to make. I mean, I I would never have predicted that those would have been the words that would have come out of his mouth. But I think one of the things that we talk about as a family is that Sue has had eight careers, if you want to call them careers, or eight Mm -hmm. life shifts. Me, until I left government, had only one. Right. That was the, the thing I got stuck in because I hadn't really had the conversation with myself. What do you really want to do? Where do you want to make a difference? We did have conversations as a family all the time. I remember these conversations, questions like, if you're going to do something, what difference is it going to make? And now our grown children throw that question back at me. Hallelujah. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So dad, if you're going to go and do that, um, what difference is it going to make? Are you thinking about BIPOC? Are you thinking about people who don't have privilege? Are you thinking about the language you're using? Are you a landowner or are you a woodland steward? I mean, it must be as a parent. So beautiful to see that come full circle. Yeah. I'd love to know a little bit more. I know we talked about the sustainable development goals and how those are becoming the key framework for your own approach. Why do you think it's so important for people to engage with those sustainable development goals? We're at a time in the history of the planet when the current capitalist model that we have been following for the last five decades which was predicated around scarcity and it was predicated around growth. And much of it was driven by President Kennedy's admonition to his economic advisor, whom he asked in a post-war context to accelerate growth to 4% or 5%. And somehow that request for growth and the acceleration of the GDP curve became 
like religion. And so everybody bought into it. Well, the whole the whole reality is we got to grow things. We got to grow things. We got to grow things. We had a different sized population on the planet five decades ago. We had a different state of resource extraction than we do today. We had a different state of beginning of degradation than we do today. We had less chemicals being used globally than we do today. We were only beginning the journey of the hockey stick curve in understanding carbon emissions that are in the atmosphere, both in a current state, post-industrial, post-coal as, as an energy source, in relation to a million years of cores that have been taken out of ice in the Antarctic and in the Arctic to determine when in the past million years have we ever had this much carbon in the atmosphere? And all of those things are intertwined in very complicated ways that need to be reset. And the reset is this. When we come at governance, politics, and economics from the perspective that our only attention should be about the economics of how we work as a society, as a human society, and we treat the environment and social justice and social issues as externalities, that in itself is a defining reality. It tells me that I can go and do anything in the name of business, regardless of the cost or the impact. And so we've listened for five decades to financial gurus, economic gurus, and everybody has focused on the nuances around GDP and tinkering around this and all of these pieces, when in fact, the reset that is required is to understand where human economics fits. And it's like a set of nesting bowls. The outer bowl is the planet. Inside that is human society. And inside that is economics. If we understand that, then we can understand capacity. We can understand if there are economic activities that affect humans and humans are nested within this place that we call the planet, then we better pay attention to where we have limits. And so that has led to the remarkable work that Kate Rayworth is doing with redefining economics as a donut, in which we have the inner core, the inner area of social requirements, poverty, hunger, justice, equal access to housing. These are all societal requirements, not goals. They're requirements in order right. for us to live as a human society. That's the inner side of the donut. Well, on the outer side of the donut, we have nine major climactic realities that we have to pay attention to. And in her language, she has pointed out on the basis of science and evidence that we have overshot those limits on the climactic side, on the environmental side, and we are imploding on the inside and not meeting the needs of society. Her summary is very simple. We have to find a way to meet the needs of all within the needs of the planet. It's pretty straightforward. Truth. So it's a recalibration, a resetting of understanding where economics fits. The UN Sustainable Development Goals are fantastic because in 2015, an agenda for 15 years was set up that by 2030, we needed to look at 17 of these development goals in which this inner core that Kate Rayworth speaks about can be addressed as well as the outer environmental issues. And so we're in a transition period right now, and it's challenging. It's pushing water up a hill because we're asking people to change the way that they have thought for 50 years. Right. And my biggest saying is that we can expect the greatest resistance from those who wish to stay in the status quo. And so there has to be a will to change. 
where there is no will to change, nature is going to speak back to us in very clear terms. And the reason is because finances are a human construct. Economics is a human construct. Nature couldn't care less. Mm -hmm. And so that is the transition we're moving through. What I see connecting all of the things you've talked about today is that tourism offers leadership to do economics differently in a way that has social capital, in a way that restores or regenerates places because travelers are coming and we're asking them to pay to help restore a wetland or a marsh or pay to support habitat protection in a particular location as part of the price of admission in travel. Those are the leadership opportunities. And that for me is a very exciting part of travel and tourism because we're leading this change and we're educating and training a whole lot of businesses to think differently who themselves are then going to share that with their guests. That's an exciting time period to be in from a positional perspective. And it takes courage because you have to do that within a community context in which you're going to get pushed back and people are going to simply say, oh, come on, we don't need to do that. Yes, we do. And the narrative has to come from me and the narrative has to be well thought and it can't be preachy and realize that it's not a narrative to convince anybody of anything. It's simply a narrative that has to exist on its own. Then let people deal with it as they're going to deal with it. And I think that's a beautiful way of seeing it. It's similar to how, so I'm thinking specifically about the creation of an experience context. We spend so much time thinking about what other people might want. Whereas when we can actually just create something from our own values that is authentic to us, the right people will find us. That to me is leadership. And that's what I think you're doing. So I just want to take this moment to thank you so much for joining me today, for also inspiring me and I know so many others to shift the way that we are approaching something that, as you said, is a space for innovation. I hope that everyone listening today gets as much out of this as I did. I wish we could talk for another six hours, but you have pickleball, so I don't want to get in the way. But thank you so much for sharing your time today, Celeste. What an honor to be interviewed by you, Jen. I think the world of you, and I think that you too are a leader and a change maker. And so if by being on your podcast, I'm one of the contributors that's helping to shape different narratives for the future, then go for it. You are the architect of that conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. So before we finish, I'm going to ask you just to speak a little bit to the cause or that you would like to donate this month's recreation donation to. Well, thank you, first of all, for being intentional about that. I think that you are practicing the whole concept of regeneration, of giving back through your action of donating. So that that's really important to me. And I, I value that. I think the journey that I'm on right now as a settler immigrant Canadian is about really understanding what happened in this country over the last 300 years. As it got settled, and in the words of a Mohawk whom I encountered recently, he shared his perspective and the intergenerational trauma that comes with that of saying that, you know, settlers came here to this country and they basically took the land, they created treaties, didn't live up to the treaties, and now you are considering maybe acknowledging my presence, my history in this country, I don't think you need to do that. What actions are you going to take that will reconcile, that will support Indigenous people who have been here for thousands of years? And how are you going to do that today? How are you going to do that as a tourism business? How are you going to do that as a person? What language are you going to use? 
Who are you going to support? Who are you going to give money to? Because you've marginalized us. We can't make money today the way that settler people make money. We don't have access to that privilege and those economic means. So for me, the cause that I would like to invite you to consider is how can we give back financially to a student, a person, or a project here in Mi'kma'ki, in the land of the Mi'kmaq people in Eastern Canada, that makes a small contribution that is intentional, both for you and I, as a small step in reconciliation. Thank you. I look forward to seeing those. I will do that. That's my research. And thank you so much, Jen. This has been wonderful. It's, it's, it's caused me to think about things that I haven't thought about for a long time. Well, I'm so glad. And I have one final question, which really is, for me, the ultimate question. What do you think is the meaning and purpose of life, the universe, and everything? To learn. To learn. Yeah. That's what life is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To do the work. To do the work. That is at the intersection. To do the work is at the intersection of learning, of values, and of growth as an individual. And it doesn't stop. No, and it really shouldn't. It shouldn't. I say that to do the work because there are a lot of people who are not prepared to do the work. And that is part of the reality of being human, mm-hmm. that there are people who will resist that. And so how do we how do we come to terms with that, right? How do we come mm-hmm. to terms with that? So that's a maturation process because... What we have to do is, in doing the work, become comfortable enough in the narrative that we have to share that it doesn't require being preachy. People feel how, how centered we are. They don't need to be in conflict with it. Absolutely. Comfortably uncomfortable. That's beautiful, Celeste. Thank you so much. Oh, it's so, it's such a treat. This is such a treat. Thank you for doing what you're doing. This month's recreation donation is in support of the Mi'kmaq Forestry Initiative. As you now know from exploring with Celeste and I in this episode, the MFI serves Mi'kmaq communities in Nova Scotia, supporting the development of sustainable economic activities and promoting community prosperity through the lens of ecological practices and traditional knowledge. MFI lands are envisioned as forest gardens, where Mi'kmaq stewardship and resource management approaches can be demonstrated acknowledging the fundamental principle that we are intimately and necessarily connected with the earth. Whether you can volunteer your time, money, or your voice, we hope you will head over to our Patreon page to find out the different ways you can support their unique version of recreation for the world. Please take the time to let us know what the stories we explored in this episode meant to you, And if you do take action to support this month's cause, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Recreation to Recreation. If you or someone you know has a unique and inspiring story to tell, make sure to reach out so we can share it with the world. Until next time, keep happy, keep healthy, and keep exploring.